right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 223. And with that number, I found kind of a fun one. Uh, The Washington Spirit and the Houston Dash each committed 223 fouls during the 2018 NWSL regular season. The team with the least fouls was Seattle with just 202 over 24 games. And their Pacific Northwest rival, Portland, committed the most, a total of 267 for the regular season. All right, so a look at the younger side of WOSO this week with chats about the upcoming NCAA Women's College Cup, AAK Final Four, and also the U-17 Women's World Cup that wraps up this week. So first I spoke with my friend Mark Sean, who has written about the U-17 and U-20 Women's National Teams for SB Nation and also Soccer Wire. We talked uh, first actually about uh, the NCAA tournament and then focused on the U-17 Women's World Cup, primarily uh, the failure of the U-17 Americans to get out of the group stage. Then I chatted with my friend San Herrera, who writes for Hot Time in Old Town. I think I got it right this time. Um, In Chicago, she's also a huge L-Tree Fan, so of course she wanted to talk about Mexico making the semifinals. And at this point, now that I'm taping this, after the semifinals, making their first ever final um, at the U17 level. Well, at any um, level on the women's side. So props to Mexico. All right. Enjoy. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with her favorite U-17 NCAA soccer U-20 youth national team critic, complainer, analyst. I don't know. Mark, Sean, how, how, how do you want to title yourself? Uh, I, I would say that I'm a fan who wants better. Uh, <laughs> but, but at the moment, <laughs> critic and complainer probably covers it. But I, I like to think of myself as more than that. But, you know, at the moment, certainly uh, things could well, be better. And, and I can't tell you the sinking feeling I had watching, uh, you know, U.S. get eliminated in the group stage of the U-17 Women's World Cup, thinking I need to have Mark on the podcast again. But didn't we just have this conversation after the U-20 oh. Women's World Cup? <laughs> <laughs> but, A little bit. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's it's an important conversation, um, especially at this level. I mean, this is even a, a, a different level, and with the success of Mexico and Canada, which is is thrilling. From you know, hey, I'm always going to be proud of a Concacaf team, especially if you don't have US in a tournament, um, and knowing that all these players are about to enter the college game. You know, most of them ne- next yeah. fall. So we'll be, you know, we'll be following them, you know, all of us rabid, uh, you know, NWSL fans. So, of course, I'm starting with the U17s, but I really want to start with the NCAA Women's College Cup, the Final Four coming this weekend, and then we'll get to the U17s. It's been a a great tournament, um, what I've been able to watch in terms of some, some surprises and some tense matchups where when I look at the bracket, it's like, yeah, it's kind of hard to gauge, you know, once you get past that, that first round, you know, and I, I think 
as much as some of the the big names are still the big names, we also saw some big absences. Like Notre Dame wasn't even in this tournament. No, no, they they they've been a little bit rudderless the last couple of years. Notre Dame has, but I, I think although if we're going to talk about teams, you know, that are unusual, I think we do have to um, shout out Tennessee in particular. Uh, yes, that they. You know, broke through to the quarterfinals, which I think is their best ever finish. Pretty uh, sure they ha- and you know they they gave Stanford a game. They have uh, this fabulous goal scorer in Buddy Shaw, who's you know got um, the the great personal story and has been playing well for the national team. Uh, although she was inexplicably left off the Herman semifinalist list that got announced today, which I can't say I'm very happy about, but she's a, she's a heck of a player. I I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's based on number of games played. And I'm just, just guessing because when I talked to Jen Hildreth about Bunny Shaw for the podcast, a few episodes back, one of the things that Jen pointed out that she was named SEC offensive player of the year, having only played seven regular season games. You know, so I, mean, I, I, I wonder if that's something awesome. that the Mac Herman people consider or not. I, I, I mean, look, I, I suppose that's possible, but she's got what, like 14 goals? I know. I mean, that's, I know. you know, but, but yeah, so, so congrats to Tennessee. I mean, I'm sure they, they would rather be still playing this weekend, but they've done a heck of a job this season. And then Baylor, um, which made it to the final eight last year, made it to the final eight again. Um, and yep. that really surprised me because, again, not not a name-name school. Um, they won the Big 12, I think, for the first time in 20 years this past fall. And I, I, I always love thinking of Baylor because it's coached by someone who coached in the WSA. Um, the, the previous head coach was a player in WSA. Um, and just a different, you know, a, a no-name program in a way. And, and I don't, I don't mean that as an insult a, at all. But you know, a, a school like Baylor or you know, or Texas Tech, a local rival, is never going to have the cachet. I think of a Stanford, North Carolina, Florida State, you know, that that kind of thing. Right. So I was, I was excited to see, um, you know, see them get as far as they did. So honorable mention to them too. But our matchup for this weekend. We've got Georgetown versus North Carolina, Florida State versus Stanford. Only Georgetown hasn't won the College Cup before. Um, so, so what do you think of those two matchups, especially given that, you know, we know your favorite team, UCLA, barely missed getting to the Final Four on penalties against North Carolina? Sadly, yeah. <laughs> um, so starting with North Carolina against Georgetown. I actually think that one's a little hard to call. Uh, I, I give probably a little bit of edge to North Carolina, um, but it's not one-sided by any means. I mean, look, Baylor is uh, a very physical, very athletic team, um, and Georgetown just took them apart. Um, it was really an amazingly one-sided game. Um and they have some really, really good midfielders, especially uh, Paula German-Awatnik. Um, and obviously, 
Kira Cruz and Caitlin Farrell up front. So they, they are some serious customers. I think the interesting question is how, how well they're going to deal with UNC's pressure. Um, because, you know, in the, in the quarterfinal match against UCLA, UNC did a really good job of, um, exerting pressure in their attacking half and, um, continuing to sustain attacks and corner kick after corner kick after corner kick. I mean, they had 11 of them. Um, now, that said, that was also on a very small field. Um, there was a whole, this, this saga on, on, uh, is, is actually a little bit strange. For those of you who haven't been following, North Carolina's regular field, Fetzer Field, where they've been playing for years, was being rebuilt. Only it was supposed to be done before the season. Uh, that did not happen. So they moved to a field in Cary as part of the Wakeman Soccer Complex. Um, yeah, they're not in Salem Stadium. They're not in the stadium. They're no. in a little field next to it. I can't remember the, the name of it. Yeah. They uh, call it Stadium too, but it's not. It's the was Coca it? Booth Stadium. Uh, yeah. Coca Booth, who used to, I think, be the mayor of Cary, and they named the second field after him. But one of the striking things about that is it, it is a very small field size-wise. Plus, you know, also a t- um, capacity-wise, but but the field itself is quite small, uh, which obviously helps a, a team like North Carolina that likes to, you know, get get very physical and very close and and put a lot of pressure on. And of course, Anson Dorans being Anson Dorans, uh, used liberal substitutions among his forwards to make sure that they could keep running at the pace that he needed. And they gave UCLA, who, who have some fabulous midfielders, a lot of trouble. Um, and so it will be very interesting to see if they can do the same thing to Georgetown playing on a much bigger field. Um, and, and I think. The intangibles for me, I think, are with UNC. You know, they have players who've been here before. They have, obviously, a coach who's been here before. Uh, and I'm not sure. I wonder no whether travel. Georgetown is ready. <laughs> no travel. Definitely no travel. Um, and, and I just wonder whether uh, Georgetown is quite ready for what um, UNC is going to throw at them. Um, and obviously, and, and I, and it, it's not just the physicality and intensity. I mean, they have some very talented players, UNC does, um, especially, for example, in midfield, uh, Brianna Pinto, who's only a freshman, but is a heck of a player, and senior Dorian Bailey. Um, one thing to note, UNC is probably their best forward, uh, Alessia Russo, who's an England youth international, is out for the season with a broken leg, so she will not be playing. Uh, if she were in, I think it would definitely, definitely give the edge to UNC. As it is, it's not as much, but I, I, I still think UNC in the final is most likely. Though, talk so a that's... little bit about well, talk a little bit about North Carolina's goalkeeper because she was really yeah. the difference maker in the penalty kicks, you know. Um, but it seemed yeah. like it seemed like UCLA was knocking on the door most of that game. I mean, that especially for them to come back from being down 2-0 to tie it 2-2. Yes. Um, and it's worth noting, so it's worth noting that the first goal was um, 
to some extent the uh, on the goalkeeper um, because Haley Mace was near post and the Samantha Leshnack, who's the UNC goalkeeper, set up in a very, very wide stance such that Mace was able to hit it through her legs, when she really, from that angle, should not have been able to. Um, and there were some times... Leshnack, historically, is a very, very aggressive off her line. Um, and sometimes that gets her into trouble. Um, that happened when UNC was eliminated by Princeton in overtime last year. It happened because Leshnack came off too aggressively, didn't get to the ball, and Princeton was able to chip it past her. This time, there were a couple of a couple of uneasy moments. Um, UCLA, frankly, should have taken the lead with about ten minutes to go. Um, but look, she's Leshnack is an incredibly athletic shot stopper. Um, if this goes to penalties, I mean, she was she was excellent in the shootout. Um, I do wonder whether Georgetown is going to try and test her a little bit by playing, you know, balls into sort of at the edge of the box to tempt her to try and come out. Um, but so, you know, that, that's, that's something to watch. Um, but in terms of just pure shot stopping, she's very good. And then on the other side of the bracket, we've got two previous champions, Florida state one in 2014, 2014 Stanford one for the second time last year um how do you how do you see that matchup i think i give the edge to stanford um and and it's funny that i say i think because you know they were such a powerhouse last year they've been very good this year they're not quite the same and some of that may be injuries they've had a lot of people in and out of the lineup um and obviously they you know tierna davidson um, after, you know, she suffered a, a, a fracture or a bad sprain, you know, because of a bad tackle against North Carolina. Um, you know, she's been out for a long time. Um, Madison Haley, Tegan McGrady, who normally would both start, have been in out of, out of the lineup. Michelle Zhao in midfield. They, so they've been, they've had a lot less settled lineup than, than they normally do. Um, and they've been a little less, um, incisive going forward than I think people were expecting. At the same time, um, they, they're they just so good back to front um, that I, I think I think that, that I give them the edge. That said, uh, Florida State, you know, when, when you get to this time of the season, the thing that really matters is game winners, players who you give them an inch and they will take the game from you. And Florida State has at least two of those players right now. Uh, one is Dana Castellanos, and the other is Yuji Zhao. Um, and they, they were the ones actually who combined in the quarterfinal um, against Penn State. Uh, Zhao set up, set up Castellanos with a half volley. Um, and those two are game breakers. And, you know, they, they also have some good players around them, but those, I think, are the, the, the two special players. Uh, North, uh, excuse me, Florida State would not be here uh, without them. Um, whereas Stanford, I think, is a more complete team, um, even without uh, Kira Caruso, obviously, who's a grad transfer to Georgetown. Um, and so, and also, um, Stanford has Katarina Macario, who 
it's kind of ridiculous. To, I mean, look, she's only a sophomore, but she could be playing professionally now if she wanted. Um, <laughs> she's just that good. Um, and I think the U.S. women's national team is counting down the days until she can get, she's eligible uh, to make a switch to them. Because she, she was born in Brazil, um, right. grew up in Brazil, came to this country basically to play soccer. Um, has been playing here since I think she was 14, um, is getting U.S. citizenship, but under FIFA rules, it has to be, I think, five years from then or five years Residency. Yeah. Yeah. Five years so, of residency. Which I'm pretty sure. Basically takes us, yeah, that's, that's, that sounds right, which takes us, I think, to 20, 2020 or 2021. Um, but don't check, uh, you know, double check my numbers on that. But basically, she is going to play for the U.S. national team um, in the future. She could play professionally now. Uh, she wanted. She is a heck of a forward, um, complete player. And you know, they have just a whole lot of good players around her, um, especially someone like Jordan DiBiase, who is more of a provider than a pure goal scorer, I think, but has a bunch of goals to her credit is a senior. She tends to come up big in big games. Um, you know, they have players like Jay Boissier, who scored the winner in last year's final, um, who's a central midfielder. You know, it's, look, it's Stanford. They have an, an amazing array of players. They probably won't have Tierna Davidson uh, this weekend, although Stanford's not 100% sure about that. But, so, you know, keep an eye on that. Um, they're not going to have Sophia Smith, who's out for the season with a broken leg, but they still have so though. many names. Yeah. Yes. And I think um, and Paul it's Rackless interesting. Is a very good coach. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. You know, seeing more and more international flavor in the college game, but you have to mention for Florida State, they've they've been using international players for a long time. You know, Dagny yeah. Brynjar's daughter, uh, I think, is Megan Connolly. I think this is her senior year. Yep. You know, um, um, obviously Dana Castaneda's, um, you know, from Venezuela. You know, that, that you know, that's um, that's their thing. Yes. Um, and and um, Natalia Cuica, who in the their finish, she's played all over the place. At the moment, this year, she's been playing at center back uh, and doing a very fine job there. Um you know, she's a senior, um, but that's, you know, Mark Krikorian was, you know, probably what, 10 years ago now, um, realized that that was a potential edge. And, and he's done a really good job of bringing in players from all over the place, integrating them into the squad, you know, so that's, that that's interesting to watch. The other thing to keep an eye on, um, this is stylistic. We, um, my, my, my my personal you're about to hear a little bit about my personal stylistic preferences, which may also <laughs> carry over to the U seventeen segment. Um, but one of the things that will be interesting to watch, I think, is how you know, you, you have several teams in this college cup who are used to playing possession soccer, who are used to knocking it around in midfield rather than just going pell mell for goal. Um, and then you have UNC, which is not as much that style. Um, and it will be interesting to see under the pressure of the College Cup how much they can keep that up. 
Um, one thing that impressed me about UCLA in the quarterfinal against UNC was even though they were put under all of this pressure um, and that, that, and even when they were struggling, they still kept playing their game. Um, and, you know, they have a style. They continue to play that style. Now, look, they lost in penalties. And North Carolina, they are, you know, worthy entrance in the College Cup. Um, but it will be interesting to see whether Stanford, whether FSU, whether Georgetown um, can play their game, too. When when push comes to shove, it's I'm I'm looking forward to both of these semifinals because they're they're very different kind of matchups. Yes, yes, um, and the the Georgetown UNC I think is more of a contrast in style. Um, to be honest, I'm expecting Stanford FSU to be a little bit cagey um, because. You know, these are these are experienced teams. These are experienced coaches. They've been here before. They know how this goes. They're not. They don't have to open up. Um, you know, they they both have teams that are capable of hitting. You know, of of sort of playing cautiously and then hitting you if you let your guard down. Um, and so, you know, I, I I expect it to be a little bit cautious and a little bit cagey. You know, sort of the way that um, when in the 2013 final, when FSU played UCLA, um, it was a very, very cagey match. I mean, that that was nil-nil through 90 minutes. Um, now, I'm not necessarily saying that'll happen here, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we get to halftime at nil-nil, for example. Um, now, of course, having said that, there'll probably be three goals in the first 15 minutes, just because that's how it goes. But, but if 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 it is scoreless well into the second half, I think that I would not be surprised. And frankly, I would expect it to be really interesting even so, you know, because it's sort of both teams feeling each other out and engaged in a bit of a tactical chess match, which um which I think is, is can be really fun to watch. And then I think you've got the challenge too of Friday semifinals, Sunday final. And the Sunday final is a day game. It's, it's you know, 1 p.m. Eastern. That's such a tough turnaround. Now, granted, most of these players are used to, during the college season, they're usually playing a Friday night, Sunday afternoon. But it just, it's unfortunate that, you know, the pinnacle of the sport is, is still like that, where the quarterfinals last weekend, they, those were one-offs, you know. Um, yeah. You know, men's men's college cup is the same way, and you know, I don't I don't know what point you know maybe maybe a change is made, but but that's that's got to be tough. Yeah, no, it, it it really is, and and there have definitely been finals, certainly in the last few years, where you could see that it was that the the timing was was making a difference, was taking its toll on teams, and that's that's just unfortunate. Um, and and I don't know if there's a, a solution. You know, the NCAA doesn't exactly seem interested in um, reforms in the interest of improving the quality of play, shall we say? Uh, but if if I could wave my magic wand, that's certainly one of the things that, that I would like to change. <laughs> but wave, sadly, wave your magic sadly, wand. Do it. Do it. Yeah. If if I could wave my magic wand, there were there would be other reforms that I would make first. 
Um, starting with our yeah, national team. Oh wait. Oh, nice segue. Nice segue. Yeah, we have to put all put all of our complaints in priority order. So we've we've got bigger fish to fry over on the international field. U seventeen Women's World Cup. U.S. eliminated at the group stage. Uh, you know they beat Cameroon first game again. Yeah, let's say again. Um, lost to. I'm blanking on who they played second. Who did they play second? North Korea. North Korea, and then lost. Yeah. Then then lost to Germany, and that game, that game against Germany. <laughs> I remember it. Why I was I was watching it on the big screen at, at the Phoenix, and it looked like we had that goal right at the end of the first half. And I'm thinking, there's your, you know, there's the thing to rally around. There's the thing that's going to lift the players going into the locker room of like, yeah, we can do this. And then nope, it was disallowed. I guess what they decided it was a handball. I can't remember what the call was. Yeah, no. And they, they called it off, I think rightly for handball. Um, looking, look. I didn't see. I didn't see the handball live, but it's definitely you're looking at the replays. It was. It was definitely a handball. Unfortunately, um, yeah. The refs got that one right, as opposed to some of the other calls we saw in some of the U.S. matches. But yeah, the Germany <laughs> game. The Germany game was a little bit weird, um, mostly because of the three games. That was the one that they played the best in, and obviously, of course, soccer being soccer, that's the one they lost by the biggest margin. Uh, but on the whole, this was a, this was, since this is a family friendly program, I will say this is, they were a mess. Um, I could use stronger language, but I will pass. Um, they, yeah, um, they were a mess and they were a mess in the way that U.S. teams have been before and by the look of it will be again. Um, in particular, they were the U-17s as a, as a group were very, very bad at building possession, holding the ball, um, having a coherent attacking structure, uh, and getting the ball from the possession to the coherent attacking structure. Um, that was true. And what's, what's actually worse is they had the same problem against Cameroon and against North Korea for totally different reasons. Um, so Cameroon um, was more physical, pressed higher, um, and kept basically forcing errors. Um, North Korea sat back a little deeper, not not incredibly deep, but a little deeper, and basically said, okay, here we are, break us down. Um, and we couldn't. So, and it was just a mess because the U.S., as far as I could tell, had one player who everything normally would run through, who mm-hmm. uh, was a really good passer of the ball, really good on the ball, comfortable, the kind of player that you want. Um, and I'm talking to be clear about, about uh, Sophie Jones, who is the uh, holding mid. Um, and it was really, if you watch them in qualifiers, everything ran through Sophie Jones. The 
the goalkeeper, when they were playing out from the back, goalkeeper would get the ball, where the center backs would get the ball. They'd play a quick pass to Jones, um, sitting deep. She would then pass it wide or pass it to a forward, and then they would sort of dribble from there. Um, and so Cameroon and North Korea both did the obvious thing and put two two forwards marking Sophie Jones. And so <laughs> there you they go. Basically, yeah, they they basically individually marked her, double teamed her, and prevented um, the easy pass from the back line to her to get everything going. And so they basically put it on the center backs and especially on the outside backs to try and build themselves um, and force the U.S. to adjust and move to, you know, compensate for the fact that Jones was getting marked out of the game. And we failed at that completely. Like, just... Um, the word watching watching them against North Korea, the word that came to mind was abject. Um, and I don't want to be too harsh because these are these are still kids we're talking about, but oh goodness, it was bad. Um, and what's what bothers me about it is that problem, the 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 inability to build play, the inability to react, to adjust to have more than one person who is capable of making the game and of, of building out and getting everything going, that's exactly what killed the U-17s two years ago. Like, exactly. Um, like, not, like not of... having a team. Like well, having and, some and... Great, great personalities, but not coming together. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, more than that, even. So... There were, there were, so two years ago, there were two problems. One was they didn't know they, – they had sort of a set sequence for how they were trying to build from the back. And if that didn't work, they didn't know what to do. Like they would pass it up to the holding mid, and they, they would pass it among the back line. They would pass it up to the holding mid. If there wasn't a play on, they immediately – they didn't know how to make one. And then – and and it goes along with the fact that you have, you know, sort of four defenders, a holding mid and five attackers running around um, without enough of a structure or a plan so that they didn't know how to they, – they didn't have a coherent structure and, and, and a plan and, you know, ideas of how to move off the ball to make plays happen when they weren't there to start with. And they didn't have a coherent logical structure for how they were going to attack that that would give order to what they were doing. Um, and they don't, and they weren't able to adjust on the fly. And that was true two years ago. It was true of the U17. The the lack of attacking structure and inability to hold the ball and possess and control the game. That was true for the U20s this summer. Heck, it was true for the U20s two years ago too. Um, and this is, it's a systemic set of problems that isn't going away. Um, now it kind of comes back to the the cliche that we often hear. And, and I mean, cliche might not be the right word for it, but that us Americans play a very athletic style of soccer and lack the technical background, technical expertise of a lot of, um, European and Asian teams. Yes. 
Although I actually want to qualify that because I think the way that the the federation and the youth national teams are trying to deal with that is actually making things like almost worse, which is, you know, there used to be this stereotype, right, that Americans were were big, strong, fast, physical, and were lousy technicians, right? And so the youth national teams seem to have decided, okay, great, we want people who have really good technique. That solves the problem. So they got a bunch of, of players who have really good feet. You know, they're two-footed. They, they, they're really good with the ball at their feet. And they're really good dribblers. And then that's that's their skill. Are they good in combination? Are they good at, you know, um, figuring out how to distribute the ball amongst themselves? Maybe, maybe not. Um, certainly, and... Do the coaches know how to do that? No, definitely not. Um, and so the thing that's frustrating is, you know, we have all these ball wizards and none of them know what the heck to do with it. Or if they do, their coaches aren't putting them in a position to set that up. Um, and so when people talk, for example, about the technical Asian teams, okay, it's true. Look, it, like teams like Japan have immaculate technique, but they also always have a plan for when they have the ball you know someone is always in the right place or puts themselves in the right place to receive a pass and send the next one on you know they're constantly moving they they know what they're doing when they get the ball whereas the u.s as far as i can tell they think um someone i think it was kim mccauley once said recently about the senior national team that they're set up to be a chaos machine and it works for the senior national team because we have enough, like, amazing players at the senior right. level that, you know, they can make chaos work for them. Right now, that, and as far as I can tell, they're sort of doing the same thing. Like, we have a bunch of chaotic dribblers who are really good at improvising. Like, when, when they have taken the ball away, you saw this against Germany, when they've forced a turnover, when the ball has come loose, in their in their attacking half they can hit you quickly really well you know two two passes and someone's in right but when germany kicked it long and forced the u.s to build out of the back they were terrible and and so like and it the the against good teams at the international level you're you're only going to have so many chances to to be a chaos merchant and if you can't do anything else, you're going to lose. And we have. Like, you know, we two years ago, the, the U-17s flamed out at the group stage. The U-20s scraped their way through playing, like, the most conservative, scared tactics. And then got outplayed by Mexico in the quarterfinal. Right. This year, the U-20s went out at the group stage. The U-17s just went out at the group stage. Um, meanwhile... Meanwhile, we have Canada and Mexico, especially Mexico, because they have the harder draw, right? They, they, they beat Brazil. They drew 1-1 against Japan and played very well in that game. Uh, certainly better than our U-17s did against Japan two years ago. Good Lord. And, and then, <laughs> and now they're in this, and now they're in the semifinal. Like, it's an all-con-kick-ass semifinal while the U.S. is sitting at home. Um, great. Um, I haven't even I haven't even gone through Wikipedia to check. I'm fairly certain without checking 
that it's the first time Mexico and Canada have ever met in the knockout round of any FIFA tournament. Men, women, age group, whatever. You know? Like, it's, I, I it's sure historic. I can't think of a one. Yeah, no, I, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. And it's the first time either of them have been in the semifinals. And of course, they're meeting. Um, but look, like, our U17s haven't made it out of the group stage since the first U17 tournament in 2008, um, which that's, you know, not so good. Um, and and look, some of this, I think, is stylistic. Um, it, it also needs to be said that the coaching hasn't been good enough. Um, yeah. I think that was true two years ago. Um, I think that's, that was true of both the U20s and definitely the U-17s this year. Um, there were any number of things um, that I think Mark Hart just got wrong or wasn't ready for or just was not good enough. Um, look, the thing with Sophie Jones that I was talking about before is really the most glaring. I mean, like, this was the – they had a game plan. It was a very obvious game plan. Everybody knew this was their game plan. Um, and within the first, look, uh, in the Cameroon match, first group match, the first five minutes, I'm pretty sure I tweeted, oh, interesting, Cameroon is double-teaming Jones. I wonder how the U.S. is going to adjust. They never did. Then, then North Korea did the same thing. They never adjusted. Because as far as I can tell, it, it, best best I can figure, Mark Carr didn't, realize that was going to happen which is kind of amazing uh like I, and, I and i've seen i've seen this coach. before i've seen this before even even on the senior level um and of course i'm going way deep historical here but 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 when you said mark carr didn't think you know you, you would you would need to it made it totally made me think of 2003 women's world cup u.s is playing germany in the semifinal, they go down early 1-0. They're pushing, they're pushing, they're not getting a goal, they're not getting a goal, they're doing the same thing of just kind of either Lily or, or Mehams crossing to, to Abby Wambach, and they're just, you know, Germany's shutting it down, shutting it down. They never change it up. They never even put in a third sub to to refresh them or change it up. Like, I think they really believe that, you know, no, this this will eventually work. but you know, at a certain point, <laughs> if it's not working, you got to change, you know, yeah. and, and, um, and, I, and I think just historically, but more specifically now, we're, we're not good at, at, at that flexibility. I don't think our, our youth development, um, especially the way most, most kids are exposed to soccer kind of focuses on that, on that at all. But, but I do want to hear from you, you know, and, and let listeners know that it's like, you know, failure at this level doesn't mean, oh my God, the sky is falling. Um, but it, but it does point to, you know, areas where U.S. soccer needs to be concerned or needs to make some changes or, you know, try, try different tactics. I mean, if you're U.S. soccer, yeah. Mark, what, what, what do you take from this? Well, if I'm U.S. soccer, I think everything's fine and we have a bunch of talented kids and the senior team is continuing to win, so there's no need to make changes. Um, 
that is my prediction for what will happen. Uh, also, okay, but what know, what if what if you're the new yeah. you're the new GM yeah. hired to run the women's national team, which is all levels, not just the senior level? Um, so if I had if I had my magic wand to do something with the youth national team program, um, first thing I think they need a wholesale change in the coaching staff because. And it's not even necessarily that I think that that's because everybody in that system is a bad coach, but they, the U.S. national youth national teams, and and this is true on the men's side too, uh, are very very insular. Um, they hire from within, they promote from within, they all know each other, they're all friends from going back. And I mean, the last time you had coaches from outside was in 20 in the 2012 cycle um and that's at both the u17 and the u20 level everybody since has been people with long-standing connections to the program and at a certain point that doesn't work um especially because it means you know when when you have a uh, reason to think that the coaches who are getting promoted are not necessarily the best ones out there um so that's one thing um i think and i i you know, I said this, I, I wrote a piece for SB Nation after the U20s. I think that this, that the style they want to play is wrong. They really seem to think that um, getting it wide and having people dribble and take on 1v1 and so on is the most effective uh, approach. And I just don't think that's true. Uh, and I, I think, frankly, the proof is in the pudding. Um, and the best college programs, um, the most sophisticated college programs, a place like Stanford, a place like UCLA, um, I would also add Virginia uh, under Steve Swanson, who coincidentally was the U20 coach in 2012 when we won the World Cup. But those programs play uh, a style that is, I mean, they they all of them are rely on players who are incredibly comfortable on the ball, who, you know, are, are good. They're all good passers. They have a really good understanding. They move well with with the ball, without the ball, you know, and, and they can control a game. Um, and, and I think that's, to some extent, like where the, the flaws really start to show is the U.S. teams don't know how to build possession and hold it and knock it around and, you know, drag the other team out of shape and find an opening and exploit it. Um, right. If they start with the ball, they don't know what the heck to do with it. They only know what to do when uh, uh, they've taken it away. Um, and I think now, obviously there, there's a deep cultural in, in U S soccer um, men's and women's both. There is a deep culture of focusing on individualistic play, on players who are quick, players who are good dribblers, all the rest of it. Um, and, and, you know, so it's not like this is happening in a vacuum. But I think there are, there are coaches and there are teams out there that play a different style. Um, that's true at youth level. Um, Sophie Jones' club team, um, the 
Earth, San Jose Earthquakes and the Development Academy play a different style, for example. You know, we were just, right. I was just talking about some of the college programs that play a different style. That's what we need to take as our model um, and find the coaches who want to play that way, put them in charge, um, and not have everybody be, every single coach in the program be a friend or protege or colleague of Jill Ellis and April Heinrichs, because that's just not getting it done. And, and that's so huge. And, you know, April Heinrichs announced this fall that, you know, she would be stepping down. Um, and, you know, it's obviously she's con- contributed a lot of great stuff to the program over the years, but I think you're right. It's, it's like, you can't be insular. It doesn't matter who you are. You, you can't sustain long-term success being that way, but let's, let's wrap yeah. it up, Mark, and, and talk, um, uh, you know, sign off with Mexico versus Canada Huge semifinal, and of course, some some people will probably be listening to this after um, the, the game. Um, but but who's your pick for who? Which of those Concacaf teams is going to make the U seventeen Women's World Cup final? Mexico, because I think they um, two things. One, uh, I think they have a little bit of an edge tactically. Uh, I think Canada, you know, in the in the uh, the quarterfinal against Germany, Canada, like they had a lot of the ball, but they were struggling to to break down. Germany was not playing well at all, but Canada was right. really struggling to break them down. Um, and obviously, Jordan Heidema is a heck of a player. Um, yes, but I think. But that said, um, Allison Gonzalez and uh, Natalia Maleon for Mexico, I think, are also really, really good players. And I I think that, you know, Rianne Wilkinson has done a very good job with Canada, but I think that Vergara from Mexico has got them playing a little bit better soccer. Um, now, it could be that, you know, Haidema scores or the Canadians are able to be a little more physical but look, in qualifiers, Mexico were better. Um, and I don't think that Canada have improved enough to, to change that. And of course, that was all the way last, last January. But so we've got both, both semifinals tomorrow, um, the final Friday or Saturday. Everything's on a FS2 or uh, I think. Telemundo, Telemundo Deportes, I think. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Fubo has them as well. So we'll see if you're right. And of course, those listening to this afterwards, you know, can laugh at if Mark's wrong, but, uh, or just shake their head like, yeah, he called it if you're right. But uh, Mark, thank you so much for, for your insight and analysis on the U17s and also NCAA Final Four. We have the semifinals Friday and the championship Sunday. So big week for women's soccer. Yes, as always, it's, it's a pleasure. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Sandra Herrera, all the way from Chicago. Sandra is the Red Stars correspondent for Old Time in Hot Town. Is that right? Or is it Hot Time in Old Town? 
That's the one. Second one, guys. Hot Time in Old Town. There, I got it. I.E. Chicago. Boom. But Hot Time in Old Town. You can follow Sandra for all kinds of great Red Stars coverage. But also, you're starting to do a little bit more Mexican women's coverage, yes? That's that's the goal. I mean, uh, I think in my Twitter bio, you can. it says that I'm probably yelling about Latinas in soccer. So <laughs> if not for nothing, if you, if you can't find it somewhere on SB Nation, you'll definitely find it on my, on my timeline on Twitter. <laughs> And you had a lot to yell about recently because the Mexico U-17's historic performance in the in the Women's World Cup, um, getting through a really tough group and qualifying for the semifinal on penalty kicks. And they're going to play Canada, which, you know, we're pretty sure is the first ever Canada-Mexico knockout round um, meetup in FIFA history, uh, without checking, of course. So, so let's go back a little bit. Talk about um, those, those group games and, and you know, what, what you saw. You know, I saw a, a very young and um, sort of ambitious kind of U-17 team. I think going into this group stage, it was very sort of group of death-ish or esque. A, a little bit like right. you had it on paper just because – you had Mexico, South Africa, Brazil, Japan competing in this group stage, and, and Mexico has historically sort of had some some difficulties when going up against those specific teams at, at a youth stage. Um, so it was, I was a little nervous. I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I can't front, especially just coming <laughs> off of the whole like coming off of the whole like you know senior women's national team, you know their, their inability to to not make the, the World Cup at a senior level. And then you've got, right after that, you've got this, this youth uh, program World Cup, and it's just like, oh, no, like it's going to be an uphill battle. But they definitely surprised me, and I think a lot of other people. Um, and it looked like they were, they looked like this sort of team that had just sort of grown stronger with each game. And I think that's, you want to be peaking at the right time. And I think it's, it's great. It's, it's been great to watch. Well, and, and you look at the results. What, what's fascinating to me is the first pair of games in their group, both games were 0-0 draws. So that means after match day one, no one has a lead <laughs> for any reason. It's, yeah, it's, all, it, yeah, it like- it's all still even. Um, yep. And Mexico started off against South Africa. So, you know, ostensibly you've got your stronger opponents later. Um, so talk about, you know, they – um, they beat Brazil 1-0 and then equalized uh, to, to end up 1-1 against Japan and, and you know, were able to edge with that tie, edge Brazil to advance out of the group. So talk about those two games because those are, I mean, both of those games so crucial. Yeah, no, I thought it was really important to, to have that opening day where there was all these 0-0 draws. And then to sort of slay this dragon, this sort of demon off their back with, with Brazil. So it went, it went South Africa, Brazil, and, and Japan. So to have that one goal match against Brazil to sort of help carry, to really help carry them, you know, out of, out of this group as they equalized, that the late game equalizer against Japan, I thought was pretty big. Um, I thought it was a big game for, for Alison Gonzalez. Um, she's a young player, I believe, with, um, with America and 
just getting that goal, that type of goal against, again, against a team that you've just historically had, had problems with. It was just really good to see it. And I think that was really the turning point for them to come off of a very hard-fought, scoreless draw against South Africa and to have that Mexico-Brazil game, uh, even if it was a game that was just, you know, a one-goal game. I think there's some – there might be some concern. There was like, oh, they, they haven't been able to, to score many goals, but I think that obviously changed once they got out of the group stage and then um, sort of showed us what they can do in this this kind of game. And getting that, that late equalizer uh, against Japan, again, it's, it's sort of showing this sort of resiliency – that yes. I don't think we I don't think we've seen from women's Mexican teams in the past, uh, whether they've been on a senior level or a youth level. There's just this sort of resiliency that they're playing with, a bit of fire inside of them, and it's just it's just again, it's just been really great to watch. And then to go from that Japan game to the quarterfinal against Ghana, both times coming back to equalize. Um, so game ending two two and going to penalty kicks. But first, talk about talk about that. You know the regulation ninety minutes. These games, the U seventeens don't go to extra time. They go straight to penalties. But so talk about those first ninety minutes. You know, I think with the with the quarterfinal match against Ghana, you saw in the first half again Mexico sort of build. Like you, we're seeing them sort of build off these games. So within that that first half. For me, Mexico looked more of the like a bit more of the dominant team in that first 45. Um, you know, having more chances, having good possession, and then it really wasn't until the second half when all the goals came. It was it was a wild 45 minutes. I mean, the, the whole 90 was was great. I think if there was a sort of match to sort of showcase this U17 World Cup, this was a really good one for yes. people to tune in and, and watch because that second half was just like an onslaught of goals. And you had uh, Ghana, who they made these ridiculous halftime adjustments and just, um, I'll, I'll call it like it is, there was some bad defending on that first goal by Mexico. And it just sort of opened, you know, the goal, the goal scoring for, for Ghana. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie, like it was an amazing goal. And right out of the gate, like first minute right, right of, of, of yeah, second right half. Right out of the gate. And, and just, the timing of that goal and the type of goal that it was and sort of the mental lapse that occurred on defense and that goal occurring, I'm not, again, you, you watch these moments and if, if you're someone like me who has historically watched Mexican teams and you, you, you get a little worried, you're kind of like, okay, well, I've seen this, I've seen this before, like a Mexican team comes out strong and they play pretty well for X amount of time and then there's this sort of mental lapse that kind of kicks in for Mexican teams, but that didn't happen in this game, you have um, Nicole Perez who had an amazing match and they got an equalizer and then Ghana came back right around the 75th minute again with another fantastic goal, a, a bit of a demoralizing goal. And again, these, these games, they go straight to penalty kicks if they're not, you know, if they're tied. Um, so to get to go up to one at around the 75th or 76th minute against Mexico, Again, it kicked in, and I was already kind of conceding. I, I also had that bit of a poor mental lack <laughs> as someone who was as someone who was viewing or sort of like trying to analyze this team. I was like, well, you know, I could sort of get behind Ghana. They're uh, they've come out and they've surprised a lot of people themselves, and they're putting on some some, some soccer. 
like, yeah, I'll, I'll totally like throw my weight behind Donna. And as soon as I was like, just sort of like admitting the season myself, you had Nicole Perez with just this, this brilliant, just sort of breathtaking, like ridiculous free kick attempt equalizer. And she steps up to take this goal probably 30 yards out. And uh, with a bit of skill and accuracy and a bit of luck, it ended up sort of ducking behind the, the gunner keeper's glove there and, and off the football and, and, in, and into the net and you just lost it probably into, right yeah, as, <laughs> as they went into yeah as they went into PK so it was just a very thrilling match and to sort of have this team uh, go down and come back twice to send a game to penalty gigs was not something that I expected I, I felt like it was going to be something that it was just like going to be kind of going through i know that the u20s ended up doing that in in qualifiers i was like well they already like did it once this isn't going to happen again for a while i didn't i didn't expect that honestly <laughs> but it was it was it was great to see as they went in into penalty kicks and then and really you had another hero emerge you know and heidi gutierrez who's you know goalkeeper for for club america she came up with two really big saves in this PK shootout. I mean, in all, and all four people, shooters for Mexico converting, I mean, clinical. Yeah. And they, they were all players from, from Liga Mekis. Um, I think that's, that shouldn't be lost in this conversation. I think that one of the things that got lost in this, on the senior level um, during the world cup qualifiers for 2019 was that disconnect between Liga MX Femenil and the senior level? That bridge right. has not been has not yet been gapped. You know, it's, it's still it's still some years away, a couple cycles away, but we're seeing it now at the youth level in the U17 Women's World Cup. The importance right. of having a league to grow your to help grow your your players, um, especially was, a league that's. U23, so it's specifically benefiting your U17 and your U20 national team pool. Um, you yeah. know what? What they're they're allowed a couple of overage players each each game day, but you know, with the beginning of this league, they were very clear about you know what they were trying to build from it. So it's Mexican born. Under twenty three, it's it's not a hey, our existing senior players, you know, twenty three and older can all come here and play. You know, the focus was was clearly on the future, and I agree with you that that the story really got lost during the Concacaf tournament last month. That you know, with Mexico not doing well, and they had said earlier in the coverage of just like oh, Mexico now has a league and it's had some great attendance. It's like I just. I wanted to kind of scream at the TV and say, it's like, but the bulk of the roster, especially the starters for the senior Mexican national team were not playing in the league and definitely hadn't been anybody in the league was not developed by the league. Unlike our U 17s and the U twenties. I just, I think it speaks so well for, for the Federation's future. Yeah, no, I agree. It was it was uh, a little bit frustrating and honestly a little disheartening to just sort of see the lack of um I don't I don't know if I want to say lack of care or just lack of knowledge 
of the sort of gap that exists right now between the senior level and Liga Mekis. Uh, all of those players who were who participated um, within, you know, on that roster for the 2019 qualifiers, so so many of them have ties to European clubs, whether it's in Iceland or Spain. Uh, some of right. them have, some of them do, some of them do play in the league, you know, but they're on the older side of the spectrum. Uh, right. That youth 23, 24 age gap. Um, you know, you have players who were representing NWSL in, in that in that qualifier. You know, in, in Bianca Henniger and, and Katie Johnson and, and Christina Murillo. So it was just this like large um, yard, just large utopia of like different players representing different um, areas. This sort of um, lost generation is what I've been kind of referring to them as. Um, they're sort of going to go down as the generation that, um, unfortunately. There were all these things um, that are in place now that were not in place then to, ven- to, to benefit these players. Uh, right. Sort of the players that, that missed out on all these things. Honestly, they're, 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 they're the players who, who I guess, were, you know, we let them down, you know, as far as like a federation and support and, and things like that. They had, they had to sort of, you know, obtain their, their dream of, of playing on a national level just really on their own merits. And um, it's unfortunate that they are not able to, to participate in the World Cup. But what we're seeing on the youth level is is essentially what could be and what is to come. And I think there's a lot of joy to be had in this moment where, you know, you have a head coach in Monica Vergara. I know. The, a former the, national team player. I love yeah, it. Yeah, former national team senior player. I'm sure she could talk about some disappointments. Yeah. <laughs> on the senior level as well. So it's just a lot of joy to have right now, just to see what I got as team, you know, getting to this historical, you know, semifinal, no matter what happens, you know, on, on Wednesday, there's going to be a CONCACAF team in this final, whether it's Mexico or Canada. And it's huge. It's not going to be the United States. It's going to be one of the others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think you're right. It's, it's, you know, focus more on, on the joy for the U-17s than, you know, the, the loss, uh, you know, for the, the, the senior team. Um, I just, I, I just think, you know, the future is really bright and, and we've seen a lot of great uh, attendance numbers coming out of, of, you know, the women's league in Mexico. And it's neat to see that, the strength of existing brands, some of those brands, you know, well more than a hundred years old can translate so easily. Um, you know, that, that football is in the blood of most people in Mexico. I mean, if they're not into football, they're into baseball, but most of them are into football and sure there might be some hang hangups about women playing, but if you put the women in a jersey that you've been loyal to your entire life, I think that really helps people get over their hurdle. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's I think it's part of why some of us are seeing um those attendance numbers coming out of various matches in Liga MX Feminine, whether it's been in regular season attendance, you know, seeing numbers like 8,000, 10,000, 11,000, you know, versus these playoff atmosphere type of games, you know, a quarter, what was it? I think I retweeted the other day, the, the, the Tigres and Atlas quarterfinal, you know, brought in 16,000 spectators, you know, that was, that's 
that's huge for, for women's professional soccer, you know? Yeah. Um, and I still think back to uh, the 2003 playoff between um, Mexico and Japan for the final World Cup spot. And they played the Mexico leg at Azteca. And they didn't charge admission. They just, you know, let everybody come in for free. It was more than 70,000 people. Yeah. People. So it's, it's, it's like the, there's clearly the, you know, the interest is, is, is there. Um, and I could say this almost about almost any facet of women, women's soccer. It's like, nobody's really focused on how to, you know, really take advantage of that. You know, if 70,000 people showed up, sure they didn't pay, but I'm sure you could get at least 10,000 of those people to pay next time around. You know, like it's just the, you know what I'm talking about. It's just the same old, same old. But I love yeah, the idea the, that the now same, that you got the league, <laughs> yeah, now that you the got the league, company. it's it's week in, week out. It's getting TV coverage. It's in a country where soccer, football is the dominant sport. Um, I had some people, you know, reach out to me when when I would tweet about the the tenants from from the the Ligia. You know, they're like, "Well, I guess Andrew Russell sucks." Then I was like, "We got to put this in perspective." <laughs> like, um, you know, soccer is already the fourth, you know, sometimes fifth ranked sport in the U.S. So there's different yeah different challenges, you know. Yeah, um, I agree. Where I think where you've got this soccer is already ingrained you know, in Mexico. So they just had to remove that final barrier of, Hey, watching women. But, but like I said, but by branding them with all the existing clubs and that it wasn't a, well, some clubs are going to do it like the England way, but like basically the Federation said, unless you have a financial issue, you know, like the two clubs that were in bankruptcy, you know, you are having a women's team and voila, 18 women's teams, like awesome. Yeah, I think, and I think it's, of course, it's still a very young league, but I think in, it's showing that it's working by having that attachment to these teams that are just so, so historic. It's almost like there's a level of fandom that's already established. Right, and right. And you're just sort of, you're just sort of building on that. Um, it's It's kind of interesting to you know, hearing you talk about it, it's just that you're sort of seeing on whichever side of the border that you're on, it's like there's there's different battles. You know, I know, like, with the attendance, it's like it's, you have a sport in Mexico that's been ingrained for people from, like, the day they're born. You know, right. whereas, like, in the United States, like, sometimes we talk a lot about how this sport is still technically, quote-unquote, growing here. Right. You know, whereas Mexico doesn't really have that kind of issue, but then maybe you have something like like cultural sexism that might be different in Mexico versus in the United States, or they might have, you know, different spectrums of that. And so there's like these layers in, in women's soccer on both sides of the border that are both sort of separate and both sort of integrated and sort of, I think those things we talked about a little bit more during moments like this, when there is like a, a big world cup, you know, to talk about and when a team is doing, successfully or, or not or unsuccessfully like you saw you know u.s sort of get bounced out but now we're here talking about you know team mexico well and now i'm ready to see you know 
NWSL clubs playing Mexican clubs, at least preseason, or, you know, we, we saw the dash last summer. Well, some people saw the dash last summer scrimmage uh, Monterey, um, you know, in, in, in July, I just think it, it's like, it's such a natural, you know, next, next step um, that, you know, that there's other clubs to play. So you, maybe you could have some preseason competition. That's not playing teams you already know, you know, like the Portland Invitational we've seen the last couple of years, you know, where they play the U23 national team and, and two other individual clubs like, Hey, let, let, let's, let's mix it up. You know, um, I just I think that would benefit everybody. I think so, too. I hope someday they, they get there. I think that scrimmage between, you know, Houston and Monterey um, earlier this year was pretty, like maybe a, a, an important first step, even if it was, even if it was just a scrimmage. Um, so hopefully that can happen in the future. I think that's something that will benefit both leagues and ultimately benefit CONCACAF as a whole. Because, you know, we've preached a lot about this 2019 qualifier that just happened and how great it was to see teams, you know, like Jamaica and Panama sort of make some noise, but to also sort of see how large the gap still is in CONCACAF and sort of also see how easy it is for some teams to take that step backwards after they took so many steps forward, whether they're Mexico or or Trinidad or Costa Rica. So it's just, I think club interleague, like interleague cl- club play like that will benefit not only players at a club level, but at a national team level as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, as excited as I am that we saw Jamaica and Panama, you know, in, in the semifinals that we, you know, hadn't seen, you know, in a long time, it was frustrating that, that it was, partly because Mexico and Costa Rica both underperformed. Like I'd, I'd rather it have been because it was just an amazingly competitive, intense group stage. No. Yeah, I, I agree. 100%. There were definitely some moments of uh, what's happening here. <laughs> like going on <laughs> in my head. And I'm sure there were a lot of people out there who were confused. They were like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure Mexico is not supposed to be performing this way or, I'm pretty sure Costa Rica is better than they're doing right now. Or, you know, there are all these sort of questions that were, were going around. And, um, yeah, so, someday CONCACAF's not going to be like that. And I think it helps, like, leagues, very young leagues, like Liga Mix Seminoles, are going to eventually sort of help, you know, bridge that gap. You know, I mean, I think we saw a little bit of it with, with Panama, you know, and, and their team and the fact that they have a young league as well, you know, starting in, in their country. We saw that, you know, on the qualifiers and we're seeing that here in the U the U the U seventeen level. And it's just really great to see that, whether it's just noticing uh the tactics in which this team is playing with or just getting to watch sort of the head coaching from Monica Vergara and also seeing how these players are um, sort of responding to that as well. I thought it was incredibly telling um, after this victory and they clinched the spot in the semifinal, how much the players are responding to Vergara. I think that's incredibly important. I, I feel like that's something that we've also failed to see in the past, um, that sort of connection between players uh, and head and head coach. Um, and Vergara has spoken a lot about wanting to 
uh, work on that sort of uh, mental aspect of the game for her young players and how important that is. And I think it's important to start it at this very, very young age and continue to build on that. There was a lot. 2018 was pretty wild, I think, in general for Mexican soccer. But I think it's in a particularly special to sort of have this joyful moment at the end um, of the year, you know, I think a lot of people forget that Vergara actually didn't take over the reins of this team until January 2018. So she's there was sort of this a bit of a coaching shift across the board on um, you know in, in Mexican women's soccer where they sort of took Roberto Mendina and they put him in the senior level and Christopher Cuellar is in the U20s now and, and Monifa right. Vergara is now in U17. So there's a bit of this shift, but you see these young players responding and you see uh, Moni Vergara sort of in trying to instill that um, in these young ladies and they're, and they're responding very well. I mean, I, I think, I think one of the biggest, I think one of the, the best moments of, of that uh, penalty kick shootout was in the dying minutes of regulation, Vergara made a tactical change and made a substitution for Peralta to come onto the pitch in the dying minutes, and because of that, she was able to take a PK, and Peralta ended up taking that game-winning PK, you know, and uh, it's, it was, it's just really good to see these players sort of playing well for each other and um, playing with emotion, responding well to their coach, and, you know, they, a bunch of them went on social media, and you could see that they're congratulating their coach and each other, and it's also really good to see the so many of the, the senior women's national team players sort of reaching out and giving their support to the young players as well. You know, some of them are our teammates, you know, within, within Liga MX Seminole because so much of this roster is Liga MX Seminole oriented. I believe right. there's only maybe, maybe four or five players that are sort of like right. uh, dual nationals, you know, dual national teams. Um, so it's good to, to see that. And I also think it's really important, you know, that, that there still are those, those dual national players on the, on this team, especially this young. Because you've seen dual national players at a higher age level, and as this league develops more and more, certain dual na- dual national eligible players are going to have to make that decision, you know, quote unquote decision on where to play or who to play for, at probably a much younger age level than they were used to making that decision in the past, and having much tougher choices. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So last question, Sandra. Um, though of course, some people will be listening to this after the Mexico-Canada semifinal. Yeah. I got to ask, what's your prediction? You know, after I watched that Canada and Germany game as well. And I got to say, I, and this is weird to sort of admit it, but I think that Canada is the underdog going into this match. And I think Mexico, it's their game to lose. I think that Mexico is, is coming into this game building – building on the group stage and building off of the high emotion of, of a quarterfinal match. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's going to be there. I think it's going to be close because it's CONCACAF. So I, I it's going to be funny to maybe, I, I won't be surprised if we see these two teams either like bunker down against each other. That might be kind of weird. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think, this, I think this, it's going to be similar to what we saw in Ghana. Like the second half might open some things up and I think it could be close. I think it could be like a one zero or two one. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk, uh, you know, L-Tree, um, L-Tree U-17s and, and, and the league. And 
I'm really looking forward to the game. And of course, even more importantly, looking forward to end of your cell 2019 and, and down the road, maybe getting to see some of these players uh, play against NWSL clubs, if not if not in the NWSL. Yeah, same here. Same here. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. And we are down to the wire when it comes to Women's World Cup spots left to fill. Just two teams left to be decided. Uh, Earlier this week, South Africa and Nigeria booked their tickets to France with wins in the semifinals of the African Cup of Nations. So Mali and Cameroon will face off Friday to determine the third African team. And on the other side of the globe, Fiji and New Zealand meet in the Oceania final, Oceania, Oceania, I always get it wrong, on Saturday to determine that confederation's sole slot for 2019. So the final draw for France will be Saturday, December 8th. That's when the 24 teams are put into six groups of four. Updated FIFA women's rankings will be released the Friday before. And we know now that the 24 teams will first be put into pots based on those rankings. So First pot are your six top teams. Next pot are the next six going on. So four pots, and then they draw from those pots to make the groups. And Fox Sports will be offering live coverage of the draw beginning at approximately 11 a.m. Central Time. So in about 10 days, we will know who's playing whom and where at the 2019 Women's World Cup. Meanwhile, the Women's College Cup for Division I women's soccer is this weekend in Cary, North Carolina at the home of, of course, the North Carolina Courage. Semifinals will be Friday, 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. Central. The championship game, Sunday at noon Central. All games air live on ESPNU and the Watch ESPN app. And this week, we got the announcement of the NWSL schedule format for 2019. That's right, season seven. It'll be a 24-game season beginning April 13th with preseason beginning March 4th. There will be a short break in June, a pretty short break uh, for the Women's World Cup, Um, but overall the season is longer to allow for more weekend games for all teams, so, you know, avoid having midweek dates as much as possible. And you can go to keepernotes.com to download a handy PDF of 2019's WOSO calendar that includes the NWSL dates, the Women's World Cup, and a few more handy uh, WOSO dates on there. Last thing, my updated NWSL almanac, including color photos, complete player registry, coaching stats, all-time records, all kinds of stuff, is available for pre-order. Just go to keepernotes.com. You can place an order for a discount. Um, This is the last week to do that. You can also buy older editions. I will have the final PDF ready to download uh, this weekend. It's going to be more than 300 pages. And yes, I really hope that before Christmas I can get it converted to be a print-on-demand book as well. So stay tuned. As always, thanks to everyone for listening, uh, especially those who were listening via Stitcher and and somehow the the RSSS feed got got all messed up so it wasn't updating, but I think I think it's fixed now. Um, Thanks to everyone for recommending this podcast to friends. And as always, thanks to Sean for putting this all together.